God from Luke 4, verses 16 to 30. That's in page 859 in the Bibles in the pew, 859. Luke 4, <clears throat> verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all <clears throat> spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Calvary family. If you are new to Calvary, my name is Johnny, and I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. Um, last weekend, I had the opportunity uh, to preach at a friend and former pastor's church uh, up in Wisconsin, if you guys remember Caleb Widmer. And so I had the privilege of preaching at his church last weekend and uh, had a great time, um, but I couldn't help think while we were singing and the whole time there, it's just, just not Calvary. So it is really good to be here, and I'm super thankful uh, for this church family and for all it's meant for me and, and my own family, my biological family. So thankful to be back and to be with you all. This morning, we are going to take a little bit of a make a little bit of a juke in our series on 2 Corinthians. Uh, as you've been, we've been tracking with Pastor Gerald through 2 Corinthians, we're in a moment of talking about 
the ministry of reconciliation and the new cre and becoming a new creation. And so what I want to do is actually make some hopefully helpful and maybe even interesting uh, connections between what Paul is establishing in his ministry of reconciliation and being ambassadors for Christ and Jesus's own self-understanding of his mission and calling in this world. Uh, so I want to make some of those connections. And Luke 4 is a very common passage to go to uh, when we want to look at, again, Jesus' own self-understanding of his mission. What did Jesus, why did Jesus think he came? And, and Luke 4 is a very uh, common place to go to try to help with that answer. As we saw in our passage that was read for us, Jesus connects his own self-understanding of his mission to a prophecy that was in Isaiah. And so Jesus reads a prophecy from Isaiah in our text that was read for us this morning and informs the audience that he will bring about the fulfillment of that prophecy. And that prophecy shapes Jesus' own understanding of why he was on earth. Before we get into that, though, just a little bit of backdrop that I hope will be, again, helpful for understanding our text. Isaiah's, and that's understanding a little bit of the context in which Isaiah comes to us, his prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy is given to Israel at a very, very painful moment in their history. When Israel receives this prophecy, they are in exile. Exile is terrible. I won't go into all the atrocities that came to Israel during their exile, but just to clarify that it was terrible. It was a horrible, horrible experience. Trauma upon trauma. And I do think it is worth, just for a quick moment to also add that for many of us, understanding the atrocities of exile are hard to comprehend and understand. I think sometimes we can read the Bible and we just, when we read just to ourselves, kind of in our own head, we just kind of read through it and move on without ever being like, what did I just read? One way that's really helped me is I've been reading the Bible for almost two years now with a group of people on Mondays and Fridays, and we read it out loud together just on a Zoom call. And when you have to read certain parts of exile out loud to each other, it's uncomfortable. And these atrocities were terrible. It's also worth noting that we actually do have brothers and sisters in our congregation that do understand the atrocities, some of the atrocities of exile. We have Ukrainian brothers and sisters in our congregation worship with us. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're longing for freedom and the end of unthinkable crimes. We even have Romanians in our church who had to flee Romania during very hard and painful times of that country in the past. And so we have people in our own congregation that do understand the challenges of exile, even if some of us don't. And maybe some of us, it's hard to connect to it. But this was Israel's experience. 
This was Israel's world. They thought of themselves in this exilic identity as poor, in bondage, and in captivity, and brokenhearted. And it was during this time for Israel of exile that they started to hold out a hope for a future jubilee moment. Future jubilee, or otherwise called to as the year of the Lord's favor, or even as Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians, as we're in right now, the favorable time, the day of salvation. And so the year of jubilee, as we read about it in Leviticus, as many of us may know some details about it, was supposed to occur every 50 years in Israel. God commanded Israel to bring this about every 50 years in which prisoners were set free. Debts were canceled. You would receive back your ancestral land that was taken in order to pay off other debts. You would give the land itself rest from sowing and reaping. And yet, unfortunately, as best as we could tell, Israel never fully nationwide instituted the year of Jubilee. Now, it may be that there were some smaller expressions of it throughout Israel, but it was never a nationwide, as best as we can tell, institution. And so while in exile, Jubilee took on a new understanding. Jubilee was not just something to institute every 50 years, but it became a way of believing that God was going to fix the world. This enhanced way of talking about Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, was a way of Israel saying that God is going to make all the wrongs right. He will bring a new creation and save us from our exile. And so while in exile, the promise of Jubilee became synonymous with the promise of God to bring final salvation to Israel. When God institutes Jubilee, it will be good news to the poor and brokenhearted. And due to Israel's exile, there was a national identity that they were poor and brokenhearted, captive and oppressed. And so in this moment of Israel's experience in exile, Isaiah gives them a word. He gives them a prophecy. Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to you, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up you, the brokenhearted, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities the devastation of many generations. Israel heard this, not just for the financially poor in Israel, 
The poor at this time would have had a much more layered and complicated understanding than just financially poor. I think a lot of times in our experience here in the United States, we think of poor specifically and solely as it relates to finances. And at this time, it was an all-encompassing identity based on oppression. And so Israel was hearing this as for them. Well, this is a 35-minute sermon, so we're going to speed up to Jesus now. We're not going to do 400 years of wandering and waiting. If we speed up to Jesus' time with all of that backdrop in mind, we see that Israel has returned from exile. We read about it that, that at the end of the Old Testament. But it doesn't feel like the promised experience of Jubilee. As Jesus is entering the scene and they have returned from exile, the experience of day-to-day -day life does not feel like what Jubilee describes. It does not feel like the year of the Lord's favor. In fact, Israel just had a new oppressor, Rome. And all was not well in Israel. And so, as Jesus arrives on the scene, Israel is still eagerly anticipating the spirit-anointed one from the prophecy in Isaiah to bring them final salvation, to bring them jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And so it is with all this backdrop that Jesus enters Nazareth. And it is important for us to remember that Jesus, and Luke wants us to remember this, Luke wants us to remember as we enter this specific story, don't forget Jesus grew up in Nazareth. This is his hometown. People are very familiar with Jesus. They're not just aware of the reputation that's growing about him in the surrounding region of Galilee. They are very aware of his family. They grew up with him. They played with him. And what's really interesting is one of the signs that Jubilee is going to come, as we see in Leviticus, is that everyone's supposed to go back to their hometown. No matter where you currently were living, one of the requirements of Jubilee was for everyone to return home. And so Luke says to us, with all the anticipation of all the reputation that's going on with Jesus in the region of Galilee, Luke wants us to know Jesus is going home. He's returning home. Is this Jubilee? And so G Luke tells us that Jesus returned to, the, to Galilee and to Nazareth in the power of the Spirit, the anointed Spirit. And through the empowerment by the Spirit in Jesus' life, his teaching in a ver variety of synagogues throughout the Galilee region was catching people's attention. But as Jesus returns to Nazareth, we should remember what Nathanael says in John's gospel. When, what does Nathanael say about Nazareth when he hears that Jesus might be the Messiah? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was small and insignificant. And yet when, one's, when one of Nazareth's own is getting attention and popularity in the broader region of Galilee, 
The people of Nazareth are paying special attention. They are nobodies on nobody's radar. And all of a sudden, the whole region of Galilee is starting to talk about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so Nazareth, all of a sudden, there's anticipation as Jesus arrives. They seem to have a sense of hope and, again, anticipation that God is going to put Nazareth on the map. It seems that something special is following Jesus of Nazareth. Small Nazareth is being put on the center stage of God's drama. And so it is with optimism and hope that Jesus is received in the local synagogue in Nazareth. And so as is custom, when Jesus would go to the synagogues, he came to the synagogue, they've been hearing about him, it's your time to speak, Jesus. He goes to the front, has the scroll handed to him, unrolls the scroll, he was given the scroll of Isaiah, he finds Isaiah, what we have as Isaiah 61. He finds Isaiah 61, and with all this anticipation building around Galilee and now coming to point and focus in Nazareth, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And my best read on this story is that as the people of Nazareth are hearing that, they are one for one receiving that promise as for them. We are the poor. We are the captives. We are the blind. We are the oppressed. I think many in Israel, because of the Roman rule, still identified as the oppressed especially in the small town of Nazareth. Nazareth was nobody in Roman perspective, let alone even in Israeli perspective. And so it makes sense why Nazareth, the people of Nazareth, were so excited to receive Jesus. And why Luke states, as we see here, as Jesus read the scroll and spoke, they marveled at his words at his gracious words that were coming from Jesus' mouth. And so after Jesus read the scroll of Isaiah, he sat down, as would be the custom uh, posture of teaching, would be to sit down. And it says in Luke that all eyes, all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. They are ready for him to inform them of their final release, their true release from exile. And so Jesus, as he sits down and he reads the prophecy of Isaiah, he says, today, which is very urgent, <laughs> today, in your hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. And imagine the excitement, anticipation that the people of Nazareth were feeling as they're hearing the reputation of Jesus and his teaching has a special spirit anointing about it and he comes to them, to their small hometown. 
And this is it. This is finally it. But there's a little detail at the end of our story that we have to remember. In just a few moments, they want to throw Jesus off a cliff. Why? All of this anticipation is legit. <laughs> they want to receive Jesus. They are receiving him as the Messiah. That he might be the one from the line of David. So a lot of times when we read through this text, at least that's the way I used to read it, was when they start saying, but isn't this Joseph's son? I always thought, okay, so now they don't like him anymore. They're like, oh, we know who you are. You're just, just Joseph's son. I actually think it's the opposite reading. I think the reason why they're saying, isn't this Joseph's son, is because the anticipation is building so much, and the shoe seems like it's fitting, and they're like, what does Joseph mean? Whose line is Joseph? Joseph is the David connection. So they're saying, isn't this Joseph's son? He, Joseph's from the line of David. This could be the true final king of Israel from the Davidic line. This is Joseph's son. I think everything's fitting. But they want to throw him off a cliff. Why? Well, as we will see, and what all of us probably need to in humility and honestly reflect. Jesus, the desire to kill Jesus comes because he's welcoming in the wrong people. It was nothing to do about Jesus. It was who he was going to associate with. As believers who have shared beliefs and shared experiences, right? We even like important experiences. We take the sacraments together. We have the Lord's table and we have baptism. Like we have these shared stories that we experience. And it's so easy when people don't share our stories and our beliefs that they must be on the outside. And soon as you can label someone as on the outside, it's a very quick transition to what your responsibility is and how you treat them and how you receive them. This is the heart of why they wanted to kill Jesus. He was going after all the wrong people. Where are we in that? Have any of us ever arrived at church and thought to ourselves, why is that person here? And for whatever reason, maybe they don't share our stories, maybe they don't share our beliefs, and so we immediately put them out. Whether we intend to or not, I don't even think sometimes it's intended. It's just natural to build up fortresses because of the shared experiences we have to protect what we have inside. Why do they want to throw Jesus off a cliff? Well, Jesus explains how his prayer is going to be fulfilled. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's it going to look like for the Father's kingdom to come and the Father's will to be done on earth? Well, Jesus says, let me tell you. This has been done before. It's not new. He says, you know Israel's story. He says to the people of Nazareth, do you remember uh, Elijah? Do you remember there's so many widows in the days of Elijah? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Do you remember that God sent Elijah only to the Gentile widow of Zarephath and Sidon and to none of the widows of Israel? That's what God's kingdom looks like. What? Hold on, hold on. What did you just say? You you mixed that up. Okay. Maybe you didn't get that. Let me say one other thing. Do you remember the days of Elisha? Do you remember the days of Elisha? Do you remember there was many with skin diseases and leprosy in the days of Elijah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember who God sent to heal? Who God sent Elijah, Elisha to heal? No, not, not, not Israel. Naaman. The general, the Syrian general. Who was responsible for some of the atrocities you experienced? They got it. They got it. And so why did they want to kill Jesus? Because he was welcoming the wrong people. He was welcoming the wrong people. And in welcoming the wrong people, Jesus was revealing to the people of Nazareth and giving a window to the people of Nazareth of the long-existing true heart of God to invite everyone into his family, and to receive his love. And because of that, we are the wrong people. If we don't feel like we're the wrong people, and we've been given a gift we don't deserve, we have the wrong posture. And it is such a dangerous, dangerous place for the people of God to be. But it's hard not to. It's hard not to. Let's get back to the the story. As we see here, Jesus continues on. Jesus sees two things going on. Jesus sees that they're receiving him, right? It was obvious. (laughs) All eyes are at him, looking at him, and they're amazed at him and staring at him, and and anticipation and hopeful, and there's probably mumblings going on. He gets all that. He, he gets that they're loving him. <laughs> but he also knows something else. As soon as I tell them about the widow of Zarephath, as soon as I tell them about Naaman, something's going to change. And so Jesus says to him, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, I know you're excited about my teachings. You've heard about it. I know you're excited about the Isaiah prophecy being fulfilled. I know you know that I'm from the line of David through Joseph. But doubtless you're going to tell me, physician, heal yourself. Meaning, this is a proverb, meaning, Jesus, heal Nazareth. We are your own. Heal us. And he said, but you know what? It has always been this case that a prophet is now welcome in their hometown. And you're about to see how that's going to happen. 
And because he welcomes the wrong people, they immediately no longer are amazed at his words. His words are irrelevant. Being from the line of Joseph doesn't matter. All of that, the amazing spirit-anointed preaching throughout the entire region of Galilee, the amazing words that they were hearing live time, being from the line of Joseph and David, none of it mattered. All of it, rubbish. Because you're welcoming the wrong people. So Jesus sees both of these things coming. And Jesus knew exactly what he was about to face. And in typical fashion, as we see in many Gospels, where Jesus is not his appointed time, he finds a way to scoot away in the crowds, and he gets out of the danger zone. And he lives to see another day. I just have a few, as we close, a few implications I want us to think about with this story. The first implication I think we should see from this story is that there is no breath being taken in this room or any other room in the entire world that is out of reach of the love of God. You may be here this morning reluctantly. You may feel that church groups, whatever, for whatever reason, have made you feel like you don't belong. But something deep in you says the love of God is there, despite the way they make me feel. Let me plead with you to understand that we're in the same spot as you. We all started from nothing and are only recipients of the grace and mercy of God. And as we fumble along to try to live in Christian community together, we can do that as Christians sometimes. Give people the read for whatever sociological reason that they don't belong. But that's on us, not you. And so please know that if you're here this morning, and you've never fully received the love of God, please do that today. It has always been God's heart to extend mercy and love to you. We actually see, if when we look at the text in Corinthians, in chapter 5, and it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Flesh is not, ethnicity is not a barrier for who is in and who is out. It is not regarded. And that was a sociological category then and still is today, and all we've done is create more sociological categories why someone doesn't belong or should belong or not. We've done a great job at that. And none of those sociological categories matter a slight bit when it comes to who God is going to give his mercy and grace to. And we can continue to pile category on category on category to have a reason why someone doesn't belong, but they do. And God is eager for us to come to him no matter what you are going through and no matter what you've been through. 
the love of God is there for you. Anyone, anyone in Christ is a new creation. The second implication is that we have to be intentional and put effort into remaining humble after we have received the status of forgiven children of God. Our natural tendency and bent just will be to protect what's inside and create boundaries and barriers for why people outside don't belong in. That will just happen whether we accidentally or unintended do it or whether we intentionally do it. And God even warns Israel in the Old Testament, in the Torah, it says to them, I've given you all this and I know you're going to be tempted to think that you deserve this and earned this for some special reason, but don't do that. Don't do that. And so the same call is for us. We have to be as a Christian church community, intentionally self-aware of how we build walls, whether ideological or whether relational or whatever it is. Our status of being in Christ in a new creation should never, should never move us to think we are better than anyone else. But only to think why would I not want someone else to have this gift that has been given to me? The third thing, the humble status that God calls us to intentionally pursue is not because I want, he wants us to be humble because we're just losers and he's so amazing and you guys are losers, so I'm giving you the title humble, so just to make sure you guys always know that I'm, I, you're a loser and I'm not. He built us in his image the reason why he calls us to humility is because we have the calling to image him forth. The most clear expression of the love of God for creation and for the world is his son, Jesus of Nazareth, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Not to show us what it's like to be human, but what it's like to be God and thus to image God forth in the world as human beings. And so the call to be humble is because this is just how relationships have to work. We can't have relationships with people outside of our walls if we don't in humility receive them. But if we always think we're right, whether in our ethics, our ideas, or whatever it may be, no one's coming to ask us for the hope of our salvation. But in humility, we listen and we receive because this is the way to be God in the world. Jesus showed us. Lastly, we have to love each other first. It just doesn't work to have all the love in our hearts for the people outside of the walls while we are absolute jerks to each other inside the walls. It just doesn't work. We have to love each other. We have to recognize the sociological and ethnic 
and variety of differences that we have just in this space and receive it and embrace it as a gift from God. So that if we can practice with each other, maybe then we could do it in the arena of the world. But Calvary family, we have to. We have to love each other. And it will be hard. And it will not look beautiful and pretty. But it'll be real. And the world is looking for something real. They're struggling. We're struggling. They will know we are Christians by our love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I keep coming back to Sarah's prayer earlier in the service that we will fail and we will fail and we will fail and yet you always welcome us with your loving arms. And we feel even now the sense I'm sure many of us that we will never live up to this calling. And yet by your spirit and your patience and your persistent love, you will guide and lead us and help us today and tomorrow and the next day. And so in humility, Father, we come to you as beggars of mercy. Forgive us for our selfishness. Help us and empower us to live lives of humility and grace that many may be compelled to your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name.